You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. All right. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's good to have you with us. Thanks for gathering with us. Um, <clears throat> I uh, hurt my leg on Friday night playing basketball. Axis has a uh, team that plays in a local league. And uh, second play of the game, I tore my calf muscle. So, kind of a bummer. We lost by two in overtime, and it was totally my fault. Um, <laughs> trying to deal with that. But uh, anyway, uh, prior to that, the first play of the game, my son hit a three, which was awesome. Good job, Caleb. Drained it. Um, and uh, anyway, it was, uh, I got a steal, which was awesome. Second play of the game. But then I pulled up Gimpy. Had to go to the hospital. All right, anyway, uh, this is also, Dave and Aaron just slipped out. They were here at the first service. Uh, it's their 35th wedding anniversary. Um, so that's pretty awesome. We can clap for them even though they're not here. Um, and prior to the first service, uh, I was sitting up here, and uh, Pastor Dave came over, and he was like, are you in pain? Does it hurt? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He was like, man, I'm so sorry. Uh, that's quite a tender response, right, that you would expect from a pastor, um, the other two elders of yours, Don and Derek, at the same time were over here bent over laughing at me, pointing uh, in, in laughter. Uh, so we have quite a diverse group of elders, uh, some tough, some tender. But um, anyway, fantastic guys. Well, this is week 64 in our study through the gospel of St. Mark. And if you haven't already done so, uh, find the gospel of Mark, chapter 14, so you can follow along with us. If you don't have a Mark journal, they're free for you. They're back here at the table. Our buddy Timothy can hook you up. Uh, Jordan's back there as well. It's a gospel of Mark with journal pages, every other page of, uh, of Mark. So feel free to grab one of those and uh, journal your way through um, the next year that will be in the gospel of Mark. Um, <clears throat> so I want to set context for us so that you'll be able to uh, understand where we are in the story in, in Mark chapter 14. This is the final, uh, final week in the laugh, life of Jesus. It's the final hours in the life of Jesus. He's quickly approaching, uh, as the day drew near, um, his crucifixion. Judas, one of the disciples, um, has already planned to turn Jesus in to the local authorities. He's already left Jesus and the 11 other disciples to go meet up with the Pharisees. While he's going to go get the religious authorities, he leads the, uh, Jesus leads the 11 disciples to the foot of the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes there to pray. He pulls along with him three of his closest of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. He would often pull these three into more intimate moments of teachings and healings and whatnot. And here he pulls these three into a very private moment of prayer. He tells them to stay awake to not fall asleep. It's in the middle of the night. He says, I want you guys to fight this sleep. I want you to stay awake and I want you to pray. Jesus then goes further into the garden to a particular portion of the garden where he alone is in prayer. He collapses to the ground multiple times as he's shouldering and toiling over the weight of dying for the sins of God's chosen people. Truly, Jesus was anxious and panicking over being condemned by God, his father experiencing separation from his father as he'll be made sin, as he'll be condemned in the place of sinners 
for the sake of sinners. And throughout the early morning hours, Jesus prays and he weeps. And then he goes back and checks on the three disciples that he told to stay awake and pray. And each time they're asleep and not praying. For the third time, he goes back and checks on them. We see in verses 41 and 42, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. And now we come for our passage for today. And I hope and have prayed that you'd be encouraged and strengthened by the reading and preaching of God's holy word. We have in verse 43, and immediately as he was still speaking these words, rise, my betrayer's at hand, he gets interrupted by Judas coming to him, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. This crowd is um, a horde of people. It's a mass. It's the same word used when Jesus fed 5,000 and 4,000. It's a multitude. The word is multitude. Now, I'm not saying there were 4,000 or 5,000, but we certainly know it is a large group, hundreds of people with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The chief priests, scribes, and elders, this refers to the Sanhedrin. They were the central and main ruling body of the Jews. And it was significant, there was significant leadership in the, Jew, in the life of the Jewish people. And anytime they got together, it was typically for a very important matter where they would all convene. Now the text doesn't say that they were actually present but it does tell us that they gathered and sent a crowd, a mob, to go and bring Jesus back to them. But it wasn't merely a mob. It was well-organized, and it was led by well-armed temple police. So Judas leads this group to Jesus, and this crowd is all carrying swords and clubs. They're anticipating violence, no doubt. They're prepared to use violent force to apprehend this Jesus guy. Now, apparently this mob hadn't spent much time with Jesus, as many of them didn't know him, didn't even know what he looked like. I gather that from what we discover in the following verse. Look in verse 44. Now, the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, seize him, and lead him away securely, under guard, that is. And so there would be no need for an identifying kiss on that guy to, to identify him as the one they need to arrest if they already knew who he was. Now, here we have a, quite an example of one whose custom is money. Remember last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus, as was his custom, went away to pray. Under stress, anxiety, toiling with what was before him, he would get away, as was his custom, to pray. Well, here we have someone, Judas, whose custom was money. When he wanted to know what to do, when he wanted to know who he was, when he needed some direction, his idol was that of money not getting away with intimate moments with the Father. Rather than praying to be kept from temptation, as we looked in our text last Sunday, Jesus said, pray that you not enter temptation. Rather than praying to be kept from temptation, protected through temptation, Judas seems to have embraced temptation. You know, three years earlier, Judas heard Jesus, come, Judas, come and follow me. And he made his way to Jesus. Well, here, this coming to Jesus, making his way to Jesus is quite different. This time, Judas makes his way to Jesus, not to follow him for life, but to reject him, arrest him, and ultimately follow him to his death. Now, this is a very intense scene. Soldiers and guards 
Pharisees, religious leaders, many others, and they all have lanterns and torches and swords and clubs and other weapons. And Judas had strategically coordinated this moment. He was, he was being paid to do this. He had been paid money to set up this moment. It was going to be under the cover of darkness, and the crowd would not, uh, the, the crowd would stay back from Judas and the disciples until he identified him, the one that they were to arrest, and he would do so with a kiss on the cheek. As he greets the other disciples, perhaps he gives them a hug, right? Perhaps some sort of greeting. But with Jesus, it's more of a familial greeting. It was very, very common that the greeting would be this way for a rabbi and a Talmud, a rabbi and a disciple. And only they, or I'm sorry, once they see Judas do this to this particular man, Judas gave them orders and directions. I want you to seize him. I want you to tie him up. I want you to arrest him and lead him away. And then they come to Jesus in verse 45. They make their way up to him. And Judas says, Rabbi, and he kisses him, wasting no time on greeting the other, the other 11 disciples. Judas makes his way straight to Jesus. And he says, teacher. And then he gives him the kiss of betrayal. And as soon as this happens, the armed mob, look in verse 46, they lay their hands on Jesus and they seize him. They lay their hands on him and seized him. I mean, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is their creator. This is their rabbi. This is their teacher. And he's being arrested by a violent mob of haters. This can't be the way. This can't happen. Something must be done. Something's got to change. And as we learn in other gospel accounts, like uh, John chapter 18, one of the disciples does do something, and his name is Peter, identified in John 18. He's the one of those in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, pulled his dagger, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, removing his ear. Now, Peter is a fascinating man. He's a fascinating character in the four gospels, in the New Testament. There's maybe two swords total among the 11 disciples and Jesus. And they're facing a mob of armed vigilantes. Think about this moment. Peter thinks, we got this. Peter thinks, Jesus, you said all things are possible, baby. Let's go, right? I admire the zeal of Peter. I really always have. Well, he cuts off the man's ear, a servant of the high priest, nonetheless. Now, I want you to be reminded of Peter's profession, what he did for a living, where he was skilled. Peter was a fisherman. Accuracy isn't a necessary skill for fishing. His target is to hit water, right? Just throw it in the sea. It's really hard to miss the ocean. My point here is I don't believe Peter was aiming for the ear and making a statement, next time I'll cut you deeper. I think he was going for his head and he missed. And the servant of the high priest here, his name is Malchus, which oddly enough, Malchus means dagger. This altercation with him is recorded in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the other accounts and tellings of this situation, at this moment, we learn that Jesus bends down and he picks up the ear of Malchus from the dirt. He places it back on the head of Malchus. Jesus heals him. 
Perhaps as Jesus is in the middle of this healing moment, bent over, healing Malchus, he speaks. Look in verse 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a rebel? Have you come out against a robber? Have you come out against a bandit with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, day after day, I was with you. And so maybe there are perhaps a few that would recognize him, that were in the temple with him, that he recognized, that they recognized him. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let God's plan roll on. I'm really amazed here at the calm response of Jesus, his poise. Most of us, if we saw an ear flaw of a person, we would have a problem, right? (laughs) Jesus simply picks it up and puts it back on. I mean, he's the one who created this man. He created the idea of an ear canal. He knows all about this man. Jesus is like, you know, there's really no need for all this. This is an awful lot of drama. You guys, you could have arrested me any day in the temple. It didn't have to be like this. You see, Jesus knew what the Sanhedrin knew within themselves. They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people's reaction if they arrested Jesus publicly in the temple. They had to do it in the darkness. They had to do it away from others. But I mean, in this moment, what power, what grace, what tenderness of Jesus, what meekness, what poise and passion. It's like as the disciples fight, as the disciples try to fight back, Jesus doesn't resist his arrest. He trusts this moment to his father, to the plan that his father has. It's as if he says, man, if I wanted to be rescued, I would call 72,000 angels to come and rescue me. They're ready and willing at my command. I don't need you to fight this way, Peter. We don't need to fight this way. Peter, I must be obedient to my father. I must do this to fulfill the scriptures. I have to do this to fulfill all the covenants made to God's people. And Peter, this is me fighting. This is me winning. Peter, I want you to trust me. It has to happen like this. Peter, I'm willingly, I'm joyfully drinking the cup of God's foaming wrath and I'm gonna drink it dry in the place of every single person who will believe in me. Yes, I live perfectly as them and now I'm handed over and arrested so that I can suffer and be judged and die for them as them. Peter, these men and Judas and Satan, they all think that they're outsmarting my father's mind. They all think that they're outmaneuvering the plan of my father, that they're outdoing the creativity of God. But Peter, really, they're falling right into the very plan of God that's been in place before the foundation of the world. You see, though Jesus could have fought back, he doesn't. And though he could have been rescued, he isn't. And this is his choice. He surrenders himself so that ultimately you could be rescued. It's not the sword that we need, which represents our way of saving ourselves. Peter says, I know how we can fix this moment. We all have these swords where we try to take control, where we try to fix a situation. It's not the sword that we need in this situation, but the cross, that's what we need. That's God's plan to rescue us. The obedience of Jesus to the Father's will, to the arrest, to the beatings, to the cross, to the cup of wrath, this is Jesus fighting our greatest enemies. 
It's through the obedience of Jesus Christ that he's not passive. In fact, he's, he's fighting, he's defeating aggressively the enemies of sin and death. Here, his surrender is his fight. It's his surrender that is winning. And I want you to see this in your story and in your life today. Your surrender to his will, your surrender to God, your humbling yourself before Jesus Christ is fighting. That is winning. Our giving up and our giving in to God by faith, that is our fight. Trusting and praying is not passive. Praying is not passive. It's very active. It's very aggressive. The most aggressive thing you can do to fight through life is pray. It's to humble yourself before God. That is fighting. That is fighting, fighting tenaciously. And we fight by trusting and praying and seeking to live obedient lives before God. That is active fighting. It's not doing nothing. It's doing the biggest something that you can do. We often think, well, of course I'm going to pray, but I need to do something. Don't overlook prayer. Don't minimize prayer. You pray and then maybe do something else, sure. But you make sure that you pray. Pray. In verse 50, proving Jesus is prophecy true that he mentioned just earlier to the disciples, and they all left him and fled alone before his betrayer, alone before an angry crowd, ready to do anything to apprehend him. He's got no one who believes him, no one who's standing with him. They all fled. He just said this earlier to all the disciples, that they would leave him. They run in fear. Not Judas. Judas didn't run. Judas is with him so that he gets his money. It's interesting that Judas is the only disciple that follows Jesus further into Jerusalem, but it's so that he can get his money as he's paid for the arrest of Jesus. You know, Jesus knows that his actions, as well as others, they're fulfilling the scriptures. All of this must take place. In the garden we looked at last Sunday, Jesus worked out some stuff with his father through prayer. But now at this point, he's heading full steam to the cross. He's embracing the plan of God that was set forth before the foundation of the world. And he's looking forward to working to redeem fallen creation back to the creator, back to God. And this scene admittedly closes in a really strange way. You probably never read that portion where a man runs naked through a garden, right? Maybe in Genesis, not in Mark, right? The scene closes in a really strange way. Look in verse 51. And a young man followed him but nothing, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's interesting. This is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And many believe that this was Mark writing of himself. Many also believe that the upper room where they had just shared in communion, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, was the home of Mark. In fact, the, one of the early churches started in the home of Mark's mother. But regardless who this person is, even this person runs away and leaves Jesus. Jesus says in verse 49, powerfully, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What sort of scriptures were being fulfilled? Well, one that I would like to leave you with comes from Isaiah 52 and 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle with his blood many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, speaking of Jesus here in the Old Testament, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men. Jesus would be a man of sorrows. Remember in the garden, he would be acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He shouldered our griefs as our substitute, if you will. He's carried our sorrows upon himself, even there in the garden, even on the cross. Yet you and I thought nothing of it. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. Here we begin to get this exchange language, what theologians call the great exchange, where he was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. And upon him, all right, he borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Again, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have drifted and gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way and not God's way. And for this, the Lord has laid not on us, which is what we deserve, but laid on him. He's borne he's our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb led to slaughter, just like in his arrest, like a sheep that was before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. No retaliation. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Just like in the garden with his arrest. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. It's you and me. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. He did not deserve this. He was perfect. In fact, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God has. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Justification. To be accounted, declared righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He will bear their griefs 
borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, laid on him the iniquity and sin of us all. He shall bear their iniquities and sins. This is substitute language. He's taking our place. He's shouldering our sin. He's taking responsibility for us and the things that we've done. He's had no deceit in his mouth. He's not sinned. He doesn't deserve this upon his shoulders. He doesn't deserve this blame. We deserve this blame. Yet it was the Father's will to crush him and not you. So that you could be restored and redeemed as he's cursed on the tree for you. And the final phrase there in, in Isaiah 53, yet he, I'm sorry, he poured out his soul to death. No, I'm sorry, back up. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with us as us transgressors and sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many. Again, substitute language. And even makes intercession, prayer for sinners, transgressors. The horrific yet gloriously wonderful work of the Messiah. He was unjustly arrested so that we might be graciously set free. Again, the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteousness for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite passages, one that'll be read at my funeral. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ Jesus we might be good enough for heaven, fit for a relationship with God, restored perfectly, above reproach and blameless before the Father. So that when God looks at us, he says, just like he did Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son, Jeremy, in whom I'm well pleased. I don't deserve that. Jesus earned that for me. This is my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. She doesn't deserve that. Yet Jesus earned it for her because declaring this upon the cross, he looks at Jesus and says, cursed are you. You're being crushed. I'm crushing my son so that my future sons and daughters who are enemies and orphaned out of their rebellion will be brought near through the blood of the cross. They laid their hands on him. They seized him. They captured him and led him away to his death. This is much like temptation and sin and what it's done to mankind. Death and the curse, they've laid their hands upon you, upon your mind, upon your heart, and upon your soul. They've clenched you. They've seized you. And there's no getting away. There's no escape. You're trapped. You see, Jesus didn't deserve this. Yet through your pride and your foolishness, you have invited slavery to sin into your life and you've walked right into your imprisonment and captivity to death and sin, thinking it was freedom. Thinking that you're brilliant, thinking that you know the best way to go about life. We're each one of us, we're held eternally captive to sin, death, and the devil. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. If there's any life in you whatsoever, it's mindlessly, rebelliously, and always following the course of this world that is set at absolute odds to the things of God. If there's any life in you whatsoever, it's following Satan. 
It's like a robot following the wicked and evil spirit that's constantly and always at work in those who live a life of disobedience and rebellion against God. All you know how to do is live out the passions of your flesh. All you desire is to carry out the desires of your own fallen bodies and your twisted and wicked and warped minds. And because of your sin by birth and by choice, you are by nature children of wrath. You're in bondage, and there's nothing you can ever do about it. Nothing. That's your identity. That's who you are at your core. Yet, God so loved those wicked people like you and like me. that he gave his son so that whoever would simply believe in him would not die, which is what they deserve for their sins, but would have eternal life because Jesus died in their place for them as their substitute and representative. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world further, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and those who know it. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician. I've come for the sick. Do you know that you're lost? Do you know that you're needy? Do you know that you're sick? Then Jesus Christ has come for you. It's the work of the Messiah. He's come to step into death's eternal domain, but not to remain dead and held by, by the power of death, but instead to lead a host of captives free from death's damned tyranny. I love what Tim Keller said. Jesus transforms death from an executioner to a mere gardener. This is the work of Christ. He was damned and doomed so that we might be given life and light and shine for his glory forever. For our few days here on earth, shining as light of the gospel, pointing to him with our words, our actions, and our responses forever shining for him in heaven. My friend, have you experienced the power of God unto salvation? I'm not asking about your mom, your grandma. I'm not asking about the church you go to. I'm not asking how many books you've read about Jesus. I'm not asking about how many scriptures you've got memorized or how often you pray. Have you experienced God saving you? Have you experienced the fruit of the hard work of the Messiah? Have you experienced the fruit of what Jesus earned through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension? I ask you to look to Jesus and believe him. You know, in this passage, we see Jesus here heal the ear of Malchus. And this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus. I found that interesting. I didn't think about that until this week. It's a powerful moment. Even more so when you consider the setting, the situation, what's happening, the circumstances. He healed the ear of the main guy that was going to arrest him and take him to the high priest. Church history holds to the belief that Malchus became a follower of Jesus that day, that he became a Christian. If so, he went from not hardly knowing who he was or even looked like, to believing him. If he did become a Christian that day, he experienced the power of Jesus Christ 
personally. Have you experienced the power of God personally? Like it's, it's like what John called being born again. Paul talks about it as all things have passed away, all the old things, all things have become new. I'm not asking, have you added Christian activity to your life? Have you added certain things to your life? I'm asking, have you been like, to describe it, being born all over again? Such a complete and fresh and new start. Have you experienced that? As one is born and brought into this world, like the young babies here that we have in our church, it's a new life, it's a new beginning. It's a powerful moment. Have you experienced being born again to life in Jesus Christ? It's like a, a new day for the rest of your life. It's like a new reality for the rest of your life. Have you experienced this? Is there a lot of things different because of something happening when you consider Christ and place your faith and hope and trust in him? Have you been saved? Have you been made a Christian on the inside? That's not your doing. You can't really describe what happened, but things are just different. Have you been made a Christian to the point where it wasn't your doing and wasn't your fault? It's more than chill bumps. It's more than tears. It's an entirely different reality. It's like being born again. Have you experienced the fruit of the hard work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension personally? I'm not asking if you go to church regularly. I'm not asking if you pray often. I'm not asking if you read your Bible every day. These things are good, but they don't save you. They don't save you. Only the power of God at work in your heart saves you. Have you been made alive by the power of the risen Christ Jesus? And is he actively at work in changing the way that you think, act, feel, and speak? Is it happening to you and through you and not something that you're forcing? Become a Christian. Ask God for faith. Ask God to do something so deep in you that it feels like being born again. Jesus Christ came to fulfill scriptures, yes. But the fulfillment of those covenants and scriptures and promises, all that is in order to bring you to God. Have you been brought to God through being saved by Jesus Christ? And do you see the work of Jesus Christ as something that he did, not just for a general group of people, but for you personally? When you read about him being arrested, is he arrested for you? When you see him being beaten, is he being beaten instead of you? When you see him hanging on a cross in death, do you see him being judged as you? This is what it means to be a Christian. You believe that everything he did, he did for you. Do you believe this? Now, for those who are Christians, remember the work of Christ Jesus. Remember often. It's a command all through scripture. In the Torah, in the Pentateuch, it speaks of it. Remember your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember your God who parted the Red Sea. Remember your God who fed you with bread, fallen manna from heaven. Remember your God who gave you water from the rock when you were dry and thirsty. And then all the way through the New Testament, Jesus, his final moments with his disciples, he breaks bread, gives them juice and wine, and he says what? Remember me. Remember me as you take this meal. Remember me. Christian, remember the work of Christ in your life so that it keeps you humble and let it never make sense to you that you're a Christian. 
Let it never make sense. Never stack up all the good things you've done and think, man, God really knew what he was doing when he saved me. It makes sense. I'm, a, I'm such a good person. I was already a good person. Of course he would save me. Look at all the good things I've done. Fool, that's not becoming a Christian. That's deceiving yourself. Remember the work of Christ so that it keeps you humble, where you have thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done where you're blown away by it every day so that you're remaining tender to him and hopeful as you live your life on mission, Christian, knowing that if Jesus can save you, he could save anybody. Keep this posture about yourself. Keep this mind about yourself, Christian. Never get over what Christ has done. And for those who aren't Christians yet, look to Jesus and believe him. Jesus is who you're looking for. Your life isn't making sense. You're struggling. You're fighting. You're trying to figure out things on your own. You'll never do it. It's a task of futility. You're trying to figure it out without including God, without including your creator, the one who knows how you work, who knows all about you, your struggles, who knows everything about you metabolically, physically, metaphysically, all this stuff. He knows everything about you. He's designed you perfectly. He's created you for a purpose. He knows exactly where your joy and hope and comfort and peace is gonna come from. And it's not on you trying to figure it out by yourself. It's by inviting him into those struggles, fears, anxieties, troubles, life situations, looking to him and having him bring order to your life. You're asking questions and you're trying to make sense out of so much, but you're not asking the one who can make sense of it. Would you please? It's in Christ that you will find, it's in God that you will find the peace and comfort and satisfaction that you're looking for. And you get that through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the means to God the only means to God, the only way to God. We're about to share in communion. We're going to have servers on either side. We're going to have self-serve stations in the back. At these stations and with these servers, you're going to find broken pieces of bread. That is to remind us of the broken body of Jesus Christ. You're also going to find red liquid, either juice or wine. And that is symbolic of the blood of Christ that he sprinkled the nations with, that he covers our sin with, making us white as snow. You're going to take the bread and the servers are going to say something to the effect of, this is Christ's body broken for you. You're going to dip it into the juice or the wine and the servers will say something to the effect of, this is Christ's blood of the covenant poured out for you. Now notice this has nothing to do with the good things you've done. You're not celebrating your work. You're not celebrating your body your blood, or your righteousness. You're acknowledging and remembering as Christ taught us with these very lessons of bread and juice and wine, his work that is sufficient to bring us to God. So after I pray, I invite you to come. And this is for Christians. And Christian, no matter how clumsy your week was, no matter how much or how little you read your Bible, no matter how much or how little you cussed this week, no matter the temptation that you gave into or refused to give into. Christian, I want you to come lay hold of the righteousness of Christ and by faith, take it for the forgiveness of your sins.
Let's pray together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen and amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take remembering Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.